another edition of the Transparency Project presents on the Inside Lens Network. We have programming that's dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. If you have a question or a comment for today's guest, please call in. The number is 646-478-0982. This is Delilah of ImaginePublicity.com, and our host today, of course, is on and every show is Dennis Griffin. Um, but before I bring him on, I just want to say a little bit about the Inside Lens Network and the type of programming that you can find there. You can find us on iTunes or whatever podcast directory you're using. Um, not only is the Transparency Project part of it, but also Crime Wire, Shattered Lives Radio, Imagine Publicity on Air, and an archive of almost 700 shows. So believe me, there's something for everyone. You just need to search a little bit. But some of the podcasts that we we do, like this one, um, we highlight criminal cases. Some of those cases are still open investigations. And our intent is to allow families to present information for consideration by the listening audience. Our podcast and our hosts in no way represent our guests. We don't claim to solve cases, nor do we want to jeopardize any open investigations. Our guests present their own information, and while we may suggest resources and assistance, we're not liable for their actions. And just like today's show, we're we're offering an expert, and we're just very, very pleased um, to have Dr. Sarah Stein with us today and I'm just going to quickly read through her pedigree (laughs) because it's quite (laughs) impressive (laughs) we're going to be talking about thank you it is (laughs) we're going to talk about cold case investigations with Sarah Stein of the Center for the Resolution of Unresolved Crime this is important Dr. Stein received her Ph.D. in criminal justice from the University of Southern Mississippi. She obtained her master's in forensic science with a concentration in advanced investigation, earned a certificate in computer forensics from the University of New Haven, and developed her own B.A. degree in the victimology of pedophilia, a combination of criminal justice, sociology, and psychology at American University in Washington, D.C., Currently, Sarah provides both training and case consultation service to law enforcement. However, for families seeking a, con- a consultant consultation regarding a case, Dr. Stein will provide a comprehensive action plan, which includes an overview of the case facts, a victimology and corresponding suspectology report, all based on the facts of the case and the crime scene. The report will also include suggestions regarding hiring a private investigator, communicating effectively with law enforcement, and a recommended investigative plan. We are so happy to welcome you to the Transparency Project. Denny, do you want to chime in here? I do. I want to welcome uh, Dr. Stein, obviously, and in previous conversations, she has given permission to call her Sarah. Is that okay today, Dr. Stein? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Yes, it's great to have you you with us. And 
I'd like to talk, if you would start out, please, with telling us a little bit about the CRUC, because that's a... Sure. Sure, absolutely. Uh, So the CRUC uh, started around uh, 2008-2009. My co-author, Dr. Jim Adcock, and I um, found after um, our time at the University of New Haven through the Henry Seeley Institute where... um, we analyzed cold cases for law enforcement there, and we just found that uh, there was really a need for this type of service, both for law enforcement and families. And uh, we found that law enforcement often, uh, especially now, is underfunded. Um, Many do not receive um, proper or adequate training in terms of cold case investigation. And they're really lacking uh, in manpower uh, to address this critical issue. Uh, So we wanted to offer a service primarily to law enforcement to assist in the endeavor. And uh, along the way, we had several families approach us seeking assistance as well. So uh, we're kind of a dual service um, agency, if you will. Yes, and uh, certainly I, I concur that there's a, a, a dire need, really, for services such as yours because the families, uh, the survivors of these victims of homicide and suspicious death, um, a lot of times they're kind of forgotten in the process. People remember the, the victim or the killer, perhaps, uh, particularly the killers, if, if they're actually found or suspected. But the the victims tend to fall by the wayside, and I, I know that in my experience is that when they try to uh, to get answers to their questions about their case, about where it stands, about what was done, it's uh, it, it's it's sometimes a monumental struggle, and uh, anybody who can assist in that regard, I, I think, is uh, crucial. Do you agree with me, uh, Sarah, that? There are times when uh, the families of these uh, of these victims make a compelling case that perhaps the investigation into the death of their loved one was not handled properly. It was uh, uh, maybe laziness or maybe incompetence or what have you, but that uh, an, an inadequate investigation was done by law enforcement. Uh, do you find that to be the case in uh, some of your uh, clients? I, I do certainly find that to be the case. Um, you know, one of the really frustrating elements, I believe, for investigators uh, with cold case investigations, whether it's a homicide or a missing persons case, uh, is that at the outset of the investigation, particularly in a missing persons case, we see this often with juveniles, is that law enforcement uh does not know initially what type of case they're looking at. Are they looking at a runaway? Are they looking at a family abduction? Are they looking at a stranger abduction, which are, of course, the most rare? Um, And oftentimes, by the time they have a handle on the situation and know what type of case they're dealing with, uh, it's often too late uh, for that victim. Um, They have either been assaulted or murdered. Um, And so... it's very agonizing and frustrating for families to 
see that investigative process unfold because it is complicated and it does take time. Uh, But I think in terms of these long-term unresolved cases, the primary issue I see with law enforcement is that they are reticent to come forward uh, at this point in the investigation and admit that there was any fault in the beginning of the investigation um, simply because they don't want to embarrass their department, um, which is understandable. But at the same time, uh, I think a lot of family members would be satisfied if law enforcement came forward and admitted to the fact that perhaps not everything that should have been done was done at the initial investigation. And if they were to say that was the case and make a promise that, they would do everything they could moving forward in the investigation, that would certainly help alleviate a lot of families' anxieties. Okay, I I believe you hit the nail right on the head there. uh, uh, And and what I found, and and I'm wondering if you also find this with your clients, that when you try to obtain records, from the authorities as to uh, what their investigation consisted of, where it stands, uh, that type of thing. If it's an unresolved case, it's almost standard to immediately get a response that this is an open case and exempt from FOIA requests or whatever the uh, whatever the state law is regarding the release of information, the Sunshine Law or what have you. Yeah. And it, the problem is that I find if, if if there was an issue with how the investigation was handled, uh, you're asking the people who who are who don't want the information out mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. release it, uh, and and you don't have an outside source there to say, wait a minute, this information in fact could be released. Uh, you know, it would not compromise an investigation, uh, that type of thing. And the Illinois recently passed a law called Molly's Law, mm-hmm. and in that they they now require that on a FOIA request, if the agency when we're talking about police agencies, if the agency involved declines the FOIA request uh, using the open case exemption, mm-hmm. they are required. The agency is required to then prove that the investigation is open and active. That's the key. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. to, if not, the Attorney General of, of Illinois can order them to release the information. So uh, uh, to me, that's a great step in the right direction. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I think those types of pieces of legislation are absolutely critical because the biggest factor in these types of investigations is accountability and holding law enforcement accountable to the oath that they have taken to assist these families in these investigations. And, you know, it's a difficult balancing act, and I can understand it from both the law enforcement perspective and the family perspective. Certainly with the law enforcement perspective, if it is an open and active investigation and their primary concern in releasing that information is either jeopardizing the integrity of the case or perhaps someone close to the victim, maybe even in their family, has not been eliminated as a person of interest, they certainly don't want that information being released. And that I can understand. But 
what I have seen quite frequently with clients that I've worked with is that oftentimes they will use the uh, exemption of this is an open investigation and we can't release the information when there's very little being done on the investigation and it's simply a way to uh, either put off the family or pacify them with empty promises that yes we're doing everything we can on this investigation when in fact that's not actually the case so I think pieces of legislation like Molly's law are absolutely critical to hold law enforcement accountable. The uh, problem I'm, I'm seeing with that, I'm trying to encourage uh, legislation like that. And I'm in New York State, and I've uh, contacted the local assemblywoman and uh, given her information about or her office. I should say I haven't spoken to her personally. But I've submitted information about Molly's Law, and I'm hoping that there will be some movement. But we have to, to deal here with all 50 states virtually. You, you know, you have to get this stuff done in each jurisdiction, which mm-hmm. makes it a monumental task. Uh, I see we have a caller. Are you open to taking a phone call, Sarah? Sure, absolutely. Okay, let's see if we can find out who's on and what they would like to talk about. Good morning, caller. Good morning, Mr. Denny. How are you? This is Phyllis Cook. Oh, hi, Phyllis. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for calling in. What can we do for you? Well, you and Sarah seem to be covering it all. I'm amazed. I mean, you're really doing a great job. And as I was listening, you know, on the foyer information and on the request and the investigation of my brother and my father, you know, from starting in 1967, I started requesting information on my brother, naming the perpetrators, naming the alleged killer, naming each and every one that was involved. And from 1967 until 2017, there was never one piece of paper given to me. There was never one witness called in. There was never any type of investigation done. And, of course, Denny, you know, you're aware a lot of it was the cover-up within the Dixie Mafia and the law enforcement and stuff at that time. But whenever I got the FOIA request, it seemed that every person I had named, every individual that I had alleged that was involved in with my brother as well as my father's death in 2003, lived within blocks of the Gulfport Police Department. They were there in that town the whole time. They were never talked to, never brought in, like I say, never questioned. And then in 2017, this police captain sends in the four-year request that he has called in. Of course, all of them that are still living, there are several that were very crucial to the information that I needed that have since passed. But there are several that are still alive and right around within the Gulfport area. He claims he's brought them in and questioned them, and they go back and reiterate everything that I had told from 1967 until 2017, except sort of changed a little of it to fit their wording and make it look like they were innocent. But all the information, all the people alleged in my brother and dad's death, they were all right there the whole time, and even till today, they are still covering up the information. They say they've closed the cases as a suicide even though my dad's car, jewelry, insurance policies canceled, everything was stolen and gone, 
Um, my old brother was shot with a 410 shotgun under the neck. The gun closed. He was bathed, cleaned up, everything, evidence destroyed before anyone was called. You know, all the evidence is there, but he still says he sees no uh, logical reason to open their case and to rule it anything other than a suicide. Sarah. I'm so so sorry to hear that. I can't imagine the pains and the struggles that you've gone through over the years. Um, You know, one of uh, the most important things uh, when I train law enforcement uh, that I emphasize is research that was actually done uh, by a gentleman named Bob Keppel, uh, Robert Keppel, and uh, he was uh, the detective instrumental in apprehending uh, both Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. And the research that he produced showed that in 95% of cold cases, the perpetrator is actually named in the case file within the first 30 days of the investigation. Yeah. And, and, it, and what sad. you're saying, yeah, and what you're saying absolutely parallels that, and we see it all the time. And this is why it's so critical that when law enforcement develops a cold case unit, if they have the capacity to do that, to train their detectives to go back and look at those first 30 days. What names are coming up? Um, you know, who do we go back to? Because their name in all likelihood is there, and I'm so sorry you had to be the one to demonstrate that to them. Um, that should not be your responsibility. No, and he he was allowed to walk free after killing my old brother, and I know I have to say for legal purposes, say alleged or either my personal opinion. Right. But I am alleging this, and it is my personal opinion, as well as true facts, that he did kill my little brother, and he was allowed to walk free and covered up and no investigation done until when my father was 80 years old in 2002, saw the alleged guy in a Waffle House where he and I were having breakfast, and for some reason, I guess my dad, 80 years old, whatever the guy did, my dad finally at that point decided to hide and live in fear of either he or one of his kids, another child being killed. He pointed out the alleged killer to me and stated, that is the guy that killed your brother. The first time in 36 years my father ever admitted this. And when I told Mm -hmm. the law enforcement once again, They sent me a six-man lineup. I positively identified the guy. Three months later, they try to make me think it's some other guy and try to almost force me to say that I saw another guy. And I've had people on Facebook and everything come forward and positively identify the guy that I picked out as the real guy that I stated his name and everything, and they are still covering it up. And they allowed him to come back because three months after my father pointed that guy out and I made the statement that I would walk the streets of hell until I found this guy, he came back in on April the 18th of 2003 and shot my 80-year-old father in the head and killed him because he pointed him out. Oh, my gosh, um, Phyllis. It, you know, this brings up a, a question in my mind. And that is when you get now. Phyllis's situation is really uh, something, I guess I'll call it, because it goes back to the her brother being murdered. We're talking over fifty years, and like she said, some of the people who may have been involved as uh, participants or witnesses are now deceased. 
So mm -hmm. an opportunity was lost by law enforcement if these people were not interviewed, um, obviously, uh, around the time of the event. So that that is f frustrating. Um, and the other frustrating thing is when you have information that the investigation was not handled properly. Now, mm -hmm. in Phyllis's case, it, it could there could be criminal activity, uh, criminal responsibility on the part of these these people who apparently were covering up and, and were in a corrupt situation. But if 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 you other people find, for example, uh, Sarah, you're familiar with this case. I won't go into it, but uh, the one I'm working on goes back uh, yeah. from 2007, and. The, the family has reason to believe that key witnesses uh, were never talked with. And mm -hmm. the, the question is, I'm in New York State here, so the, this case that I'm referring to is being handled by a county sheriff's office. Mm -hmm. The next step up would be New York State Police. And I don't know how it is in other states, but here, if, if uh, the mother of the, uh, the victim approached the New York State Police, and they said they would not get involved unless they were invited in by either right. the sheriff's office or the DA for that county. And right. it, it's not a matter that they don't have jurisdiction. They do. State police obviously can investigate anywhere in New York State. But uh, it's a political correctness thing. They don't want to... Yeah. Uh, intercede unless they're invited and if you got an agency that botched the investigation they don't want somebody else coming in and taking a look so i don't know where you go in those situations do you ever run into that uh i certainly run into that i mean you know turf wars in law enforcement is almost a, a universal problem uh it's you know not just one state it's not two I, i'd say it's a global issue uh, and interagency cooperation has always been uh, somewhat difficult. Uh, I know of uh, a few cases where uh, individuals have gone above and beyond the authority of uh, state authorities and have actually taken their case to the attorney general of their state um, or in some instances uh, have even approached the FBI or another federal agency pleading with them uh, to take a look at the case, uh, but again, it's the issue of political correctness uh, and being invited in, and oftentimes agencies with the proper training and resources uh, are not invited in uh, to a much smaller local jurisdiction for fear of uh, embarrassment or um, other reasons. I I really don't know. Uh, I would think in every situation where you have uh, a case like this, you would want the best and the brightest working to resolve it. Uh, and the issue of ego uh, should not be at play at all. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not the case a lot of times. Phyllis, have you approached the Attorney General uh, regarding this, or where does that stand? You know, really, I have, Denny. I did not want to butt in, but I have contacted the Attorney General's office, the FBI, the Governor's office, the State Attorney. I have contacted uh, each and every one on the Mississippi state level possible to reach, 
and I have gotten emails back stating that they do not handle those type cases or either they cannot handle it unless they're invited in. One of the FBI agents, whenever I spoke with him, and I do have his name and number and contact information, he stated, he said, Ms. Cook, he said, do you realize that if you reopen this case, because it does involve the Sherry's murders, he said, you're going to change history? And I said, well, sir, do you realize that history needs changing? It's based on lies. And I said, mm-hmm. my father and my brother's murders were involved in with the Sherry's, and they tell me they have to be invited in or either, ma'am, we'll get back with you. And, you know, like I say, I'm going on 51 years now, Denny, and no one has seemed to get back with me. Does, um, Phyllis, does, or is there an ethics commission for the state that you could report this to? I really have not tried that. Now, I uh, let's see, the Police Officers Integrity Group, I think is the way mm-hmm. it was listed or something to that point. Now, I have contacted them. Uh, yes, I have. I've, I've done the, um, oh, there's another one, and I'm sorry, Sarah, I cannot think of how the name it's put, but it's more or less like the integrity group for police officers, uh, the grievance type. I've gone to the uh, tip lines. I've done everything. I've went to the state, like to Jackson, Mississippi, FBI, Anything that I can think of, I have pretty much called, emailed, and sent letters. But due to it being the type of case involving the Dixie Mafia, involving the corruption along the Gulf Coast and Mississippi and stuff, it's I just keep being put off. Right. Uh, Sarah, in the situation where Phyllis seems to have opened about every door, or attempted to open about every door that she can think of, um, would this be a, a situation that she might want to try to get media involvement? In other words, get a public, maybe, maybe some public exposure and public pressure for Absolutely. someone to do something? Absolutely. Um, the the first thing I would say to that, though, before encouraging you to do that, I mean, you've obviously been very I've vocal. I've even tried that, honey. I have. I've even tried that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say the the only the very big caution I would have for that is obviously your own personal safety. Um, you know, before you would do anything like that. Um, you know, one thing I have tried and have had success with is uh, you know, public tip campaigns and asking people to bring information either to you or a private investigator that you have hired and have that private investigator then pass the information along to law enforcement. But from the situation you're describing, it sounds that that is not a feasible option because they're not receptive to And you know, it's amazing that for the last month I have been getting private messages, emails. There are people that are coming forward. Now, you know, some of them, you listen to them, and knowing the story yourself, you have to weigh what they're saying because once you know the story yourself, you can tell if they know for sure the people and the perpetrators and things that are involved or if they're just randomly coming back with things to say. And I have... Right. And I must say that in the last couple of weeks, I've gotten some really very crucial information that I have shared with Cheryl McCollum with the Cold Case Research Investigating. And also, I have had people come forward 
that have positively identified the guy that I posted that whenever I was sent the six-man lineup and I positively identified the guy, and then three months later I was trying to make believe it was someone else and told that that was not who this guy was by the police department that sent me the six-man lineup. Uh, they denied that that was him, and I've had people come forward that have known him, that are from Louisiana, Mississippi, and they've positively identified him as the real person that I have named and that saying that that is definitely who he is and that the police have lied to me. I'm so sorry to hear that. I just I can't imagine what you've been through. Um I wish I I had more advice for you. I you know, oh, I know. these are <laughs> oh. these are very difficult um circumstances. I'd be happy to speak with you more uh if you'd like. Oh, uh, I would love brainstorm. Denny has well, all of my contact information and I would love it. Okay. That reminds yeah. me, sir, I went to uh, I meant to ask this earlier. How can people reach you, uh, Phyllis or anyone else who is listening that is uh, what you know would like to uh, talk with you? What's the, what's the best contact? Uh, I do not mind anyone having my number. I mean, the local police have it anyway, and most of the corrupt people have it, you know, anyway. Uh, my phone number is 678-506 4082. I am on Facebook with Murdered in Mississippi or either Seeking Justice for Ronnie and Daddy. And I have an email of Cheyenne, that is C H Y A N N E, Cheyenne1247 at att.net. And I welcome any positive information that anyone has. Well, thank you thank very you, much for Phyllis. I yeah. wrote I wrote all or I wrote all that information down. So um, and I'm going to but, continue listening to your show. So and I'm sorry I took up so much of it, but oh. not at all. I'm so glad you called in. Thank you. Very and very I'm, good points were made, uh, Phyllis. Thank you for the call. Oh, thank you, Denny. And I'm going to continue listening to your show. You two continue on. I love it. <laughs> all right. Bye bye, Phyllis. <laughs> all right. So uh, uh, yeah, shit. Obviously, very extreme situation with Phyllis. I mean, going back 50 years. But um, anyway, so how can people reach you, Sarah, who would like to contact you? Sure. Uh, The best way is simply through mine and Dr. Adcock's website. Uh, He's a consultant and co-founder as well. And it's the CRUC.com. And uh, there's a client contact form uh, that they can fill out, and those emails will be sent directly to myself and Dr. Adcock. So that's the best way. Um, yeah, I wanted to move on, if, if we could, to something else. I was talking uh, a couple of days ago with Larry Young, and he was the, the impetus for the Illinois legislation regarding extending the statute of limitations for wrongful death lawsuits in certain cases and also the FOIA uh, request matter that we discussed a little bit ago. And he was telling me that, in his opinion, it's with modern technology, it, it not only helps solve cold cases, but it also can help criminals. And, and uh, he referenced that you can 
electronically stage a crime scene now. You can uh, apparently you can do things with your cell phone to alter dates and times that certain calls were made or received. Um, you can give yourself an alibi uh, through these types of things. And he said the kids, and we said kids. I don't. He meant I think young adults too. Um, know all this stuff. And he said, unfortunately, you get some veteran police detectives who have been on the job maybe 25 or 30 years, and in their particular departments, they have not kept up to speed on those types of issues. And um, they sometimes are deceived by what appears when they check phone records and so forth that uh, that a suspect was in a, a... a different place at a different time and that type of thing, or that perhaps the uh, the victim was alive later than uh, than in reality uh, uh, the time of death. It, have you ever encountered, or do you, what do you think of that? I, it, it it made sense to me because I yeah. know when I'm around the grandkids or something, they they run circles <laughs> around me when it comes to computers and. Uh, and cell phones and smartphones and all this kind of thing. So do you think there's a possibility that some uh, some sharp uh, young people can actually stage a death scene? Uh, you know, I, I would be careful to say you can completely erase evidence or stage a scene, but there certainly are ways that you can manipulate uh, forensic data on technological devices. I mean, I agree with you, you know, in teaching um, at various universities, you know, and um, on computer forensics, you know, my students will astound me constantly and say, oh, well, did you hear about this app? And what about this? And I just, I'm amazed at all the technology um, that is constantly evolving. And I think it can, as you said, both help uh, and hinder uh, criminal investigations. And I think one of the larger issues just from my own personal perspective is um, the glamorization uh, of this topic uh, in the media and on television shows uh, like Criminal Minds or CSI or any of those crime shows or How to Get Away with Murder. Um, I just think it's absolutely ridiculous that we're making all of these technologies so well known um, to potentially unsavory populations of people that would use them uh, for malfeasance. Uh, And I think that's an issue uh, as well, is how readily available all of this information is um, and can be taken advantage of. And do you see a need for... uh... Old time, uh, let me let me put it that way. Old time police off police detectives to to uh, have updated training on, on certain things to look for and uh, you know, oh, certain absolutely, that... absolutely. You know, everyone should be a lifelong learner, um, not just law enforcement. I think you know the same applies to every profession. Um, and I think another important thing as well, in addition to uh, periodic in-service training is for previous generations of law enforcement to um, be more open-minded to having an outside set of eyes 
come in and look at these case files and see if there's anything that can be done. Uh, when I was at the University of New Haven, um, the Henry Lee Institute started a program where graduate students, um, I was on the team uh, that pioneered this service, but we would review um, under the guidance of faculty at the Henry Lee Institute, we would review case files for law enforcement agencies all over the country and were able to provide some really good uh, feedback to these investigators as to where they should be going with their inquiry. And I think that's um, a really big problem for law enforcement is they don't want outsiders looking at this information and that could really hurt uh, the outcome of the case. So is there any way, Sarah, other than legislation, which, which can be very time-consuming, and quite frankly, you're dealing with politicians who are, you know, looking mm -hmm. for votes and so forth, and um, if, if you don't have enough uh, supporters for legis certain legislation, or it's not going to uh, maybe benefit politically the people, they might not pursue that. So, um, it, it, is there something you would recommend, short of legislation or in addition to, that would help to resolve these? Maybe bring the spotlight on the fact that you can't have the agency, the police agency, in, in our cases, um, be the only ones to determine what gets released. I mean, there's got to be some way, I would think, that for a, an independent review by somebody, maybe the, the judge in a neighboring county or something, but somebody with credibility and not directly involved with that police agency to take a look at these requests and the file that's being requested, the records that are being requested. And, you know, if, if there has to be some... Uh, minimal redaction here or there, that's fine, but if if the case is a cold case, it's not being worked. Uh, you know, I, I would like to see some way where, where there can be a, a credible, independent evaluation of the FOIA request. I, I completely agree with you, uh, and this is one of the things the CRUC does do for law enforcement. We certainly sign a confidentiality agreement with them in reviewing their case files. Um, but again, when we get a request to do that, it's from an agency that is open-minded and transparent and they're willing to be held accountable uh, for, you know, perhaps investigative missteps or what have you. Um, and it's really tackling those agencies that are adverse to uh, having that outside review being done. That's the difficult part. Um, and I just, I don't see at this point any other real option than legislative efforts to, you know, force compliance, which is a very strong term, but to force compliance and transparency on the part of these law enforcement agencies. Um, I'm in Massachusetts and I am trying to get a piece of legislation off the ground uh, that is um, similar to uh, the child abduction response teams, um, which I'm a part of here in Massachusetts. And what I'm proposing is that in death investigations, uh, that there actually be an outside panel of experts uh, that works in tandem 
uh, not actively investigating a case, but giving suggestions to uh, state police detective units and district attorney's offices. Um, so there's more accountability for these types of investigations because in Massachusetts, with the exception of Springfield, Worcester, and Boston, uh, Massachusetts state police detectives um, have exclusive jurisdiction over death investigations, which can make it very difficult for families to get information uh, or get uh, responses that they need. Um, and I, I mean, I think those types of legislative efforts are critical. I just, I've been in this field 15 years and I can't really speak to any other option. Well, yeah, it, it, unfortunately, I, I think that's, you know, again, you hit the nail right on the head. And I, I hope that there are enough of us out here, out there, to uh, to get something going forward. Again, it's tough because it's in all 50 states, uh, right. you know, that you have to deal with it. But um, I'd like to move on now to something, uh, Sarah, that concerns me greatly. And that is what appears to be the number of deaths that are ruled as suicides almost immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, when mm -hmm. there is some information surfaces later, that wait a minute, there, you know, there was virtually no investigation done, and, uh, and you know, I, I don't know what the reason is for some of these, whether it's uh, just clear a case right away without having to do much in the way of investigation or what, what the reason is behind it. But do you find that? Do, do people contact you with those concerns about uh, uh, what I'm considering the suicide ruling epidemic? Yeah. Um, we The CRUC has had many clients uh, contact us um, in regarding that matter. Uh, those cases are extremely delicate and extremely difficult um, to look at in the sense that if, uh, you know, God forbid that individual in question you find in all likelihood did take their own life, uh, it is extremely difficult to tell a family member that. Um, and I, I have had to do that. Uh, and I don't say it with any exclusivity. I just say it based on my own opinion and the facts of the case. Um, but those are very difficult cases to handle. Um, but I have seen instances where an investigation or a death was ruled a suicide, and that decision was very prematurely made, uh, to say the least. And I think um, the best thing for law enforcement to do, uh, and I give this example in my classes, I say, you know, Say you walk into a crime scene, uh, you see a deceased victim on the ground with a gunshot wound to the head, and the firearm is right there. What's the first thing you think? And, of course, all my students would say suicide. And I said, okay, so what you're using there is inductive logic, which is going with the most probable scenario first. And then I continue to say, if you go with that scenario, um, would you collect evidence from the scene? Would you process the scene? Would you interview witnesses? Would you interview neighbors? So on and so forth. And they all say no. And I say, well, okay. So if you go about it in that way, 
and you later determine that this was, in fact, a homicide, your scene is gone. You have no evidence. You have nothing to work with. So I tell them and law enforcement that the safest approach to any death investigation is to use deductive logic, which is where you take all of the possible scenarios that could be in front of you, could be accidental, could be homicide, could be suicide, and you process that scene as a homicide until you know differently uh, because that way your evidence is not lost. Um, and it's unfortunate, but it does happen that these cases are misclassified. Yeah, well, Phyllis's uh, two deaths there, I think, are good examples, too. Of, uh, of course, that may have been corruption involved, but, you know, if it immediately going to the suicide rulings and excluding all other possibilities. Um, certainly. Yeah, that that is certainly makes things difficult. Like you say, once you do that and uh, you lose the evidence, no matter what you hear later on, you're kind of stuck because the scene wasn't processed, the evidence wasn't processed. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's very uh, difficult uh, situations. And I don't know a lot of times people contact me uh, regarding their cases and concerns and I always have to tell them there could be something to your uh, idea that your loved one's death was not a suicide but in order to do much it can't be just a gut feeling right you know there's got to be something somewhere else to support your contention uh, something to work with. Is, is that kind of the way you feel that there's got to be more than just a hunch? Yes, uh, I I do feel that way. And that's certainly not to discredit um, the feelings of any survivor uh, of a death because it is such a traumatic and horrific experience. And none of us would ever want to believe that someone that we loved and cared about would take their own lives. Uh, but, you know, part of my studies was uh, extensive studies in psychology. And one of the most unfortunate things about suicide cases is that oftentimes family members will describe, um, you know, there's no way they could have done this. They were, you know, the happiest they had ever been. Um, They were really up and so on and so forth. And research has shown that in many cases of suicide, uh, that person does appear to be doing dramatically better shortly before their death um, because they have formulated a plan um, to take their own lives um, and they find some comfort in that. So, I mean, like I said, these cases are extremely sensitive and very difficult um, to work with families on. And, uh, but I I would agree with you that more uh, scientific evidence is needed um, to pursue pursue an inquiry uh, into a death investigation like that. Uh, Delilah, you you and I have jointly been in this business for several years now uh, between CrimeWire and the Transparency Project and so forth. Um, And and we've, you have been involved in a lot of these cases as I have with the you know, the suicide thing and the corrupt or apparently corrupt investigations and so forth or inadequate investigations. Uh, Do you have any comments? 
Well, I, you know, I, I always wonder because uh, people are, are very statistic-oriented. And from what I've learned, the statistics for suicide have just jumped tremendously as opposed mm-hmm. to homicides, which they're saying are coming down. Do you think that some of this incorrect ruling could be a part of those stats? Uh, was that for me or for Denny? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, for you. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, you know, I, it's certainly a possibility. Uh, I'm not aware of uh, any extensive research that's been done to uh, determine how many of these cases were misclassified. And I think um, unless I'm missing uh, a piece of literature, that's a big gap. Uh, in the information that's available to us in terms of death investigations. And I think that would be a very worthwhile project uh, to determine. It would be massive, uh, but I think it would be worthwhile. If you're looking looking at the stats the way that they're coming out and you're seeing that there's this huge jump in suicides, um, mm-hmm. then we're, we're looking at resources to figure out, well, why is this happening? You know, what can we do for these people? We're looking perhaps at the wrong resources and, and putting them in the wrong place. So I, I agree with you. I think a, a, a more comprehensive study, I don't know where people get the numbers from, um, whether it's just reported, I'm, I'm assuming it's reported from law enforcement. So if law mm-hmm. enforcement has misclassified this case or classified it way too quickly, then it's going to add to those numbers. And I I think, you know, as a whole, our country is putting maybe resources in the wrong place at the wrong time. So that would Mm -hmm. uh, definitely make some changes along the way. And I I had, I'm just kind of flipping, flipping the thing here a little bit. I, I had another question if on missing persons cases as well not just missing sure. persons, but also homicides. If if a family, do, do you take requests from a family member or do you need to work with their law enforcement agency on working the case and coming up with a report? Right. Well, uh, I'm actually really glad you asked that question. Um, and this was one thing I was going to bring up. Um, again, I'm in Massachusetts and um, I still work with a few clients uh, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but um, it is extremely difficult uh, to do this type of consultation work exclusively for families, particularly in Massachusetts, because law enforcement is very tight-lipped about their information. And again, it's a balancing act. I can certainly understand why they would hold certain things back, Um, but it's much easier to do this work for families if there is cooperation from law enforcement and the law enforcement agency would be willing to say, um, you know, yes, we're happy to have you come in and look at the file. You need to sign a confidentiality agreement, which the CRUC does uh, as a standard, and I can proceed that way. Um, What I am starting to do more now with families um, is, uh, as it said in my bio sketch, to provide an action plan for families to look at the case facts from them, uh, look at the characteristics of the victim and determine a victimology report, 
um, and a behavioral analysis of uh, the possible perpetrator uh, and provide that to law enforcement. Um, but again, having that cooperation from law enforcement is absolutely critical because unless you have that entire file in front of you, it's very difficult uh, to make an accurate assessment. So I hope that answers your question. Very well, it does, yes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as far as um, your training, do you mm-hmm. is, do you specifically train only with law enforcement agencies, or, or are you available for conferences or seminars? Yes, um, I present um, often uh, at conferences, um, usually uh, either at the Academy of Forensic Sciences or um, the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences. But, um, you know, the the more avenues to get this information out there, I think the better, uh, because there is so little uh, funding and manpower uh, for law enforcement. And that was the other thing I was going to speak to, is that I think you know, a lot of times law enforcement is certainly just, uh, I won't say just as, but they're frustrated as well with how the system works and that they cannot make the arrest uh, in these cases. Um, I know many detectives and uh, who keep pictures of victims on their desks uh, and they just refuse to let these cases go. So I think a bigger dialogue is needed uh, on the topic. So Anywhere I can present, I will certainly present. Good. That's good to know. Sarah, we're we're running out of time here before we wrap up, before Delilah wraps up. Do you uh, will you give us the website again for Cruck? Sure. It's just www.thecruc.com. And they can they can fill out a consultation form or contact form there to get in touch, right? Yes, they can, and it will go right to both myself and Dr. Adcock, and uh, we're very quick about getting back to people. So, Great. Well, I I especially want to thank you for sharing all of your expertise with us today, and, and hopefully um, we don't swarm you with business. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it's an unfortunate thing that Something like yes. the well, there's so many people exist. out there. Yeah, there's so many people out there are just looking for every avenue for help. So I'm happy to know that, that you're another another one to to contact. So well, well, I really next... appreciate both of you having me on. Thank you very much. Oh, we we've enjoyed it. Believe me, this has been <laughs> very very good for all of our listeners. So we're going to wrap up today's episode. And just to let you know, our next broadcast is on May 29th, and we will be talking about the new Bedford Highway Killer, Perry. So please join us and stay safe out there and be kind to each other.